This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 15. We're recording on Thursday, August 15th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky, one of the editors of BookRiot.com, and I am here with special guest Anne Kingman, who is a co-host of the Books on the Nightstand podcast uh, and one of my very favorite bookish people, while Jeff is out enjoying some time on the beach. How are you, Anne? Thanks for being here. I am here. great. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so excited to do this. I'm a huge fan of the podcast that you and Jeff have put together. It's fantastic. So thanks for having me. Oh. Honored. I am honored as well. Um, listeners, Anne was one of the very first people who read my blog when I started it way back in the day. And her books on the Nightstand podcast with her friend Michael Kindness inspired the Book Rages podcast. So um, Anne has been lovingly called my fairy pod parent. <laughs> and I'm really thrilled to have you here today, Anne. Um, we have a fun agenda lined up of stuff to talk about, starting with the fact that Ron Burgundy has a memoir coming out next year. This is crazy. <laughs> crazy fun, though. I'm so intrigued. Uh, me too. It's called, what is it called? Uh, Let Me Off at the Top. <laughs> My Classy Life and Other Musings. It's going to be published by the Crown Archetype imprint of Random House. And it is coming out as though Ron Burgundy himself has written it. Not Will Ferrell, not a writer of the Anchorman movies, but Ron Burgundy himself. Yeah, I want to know, like, who comes up with these ideas? Like, is it just, you know, Will Ferrell not having anything better I to know. do? I know. And, like, is Will Ferrell going to go on book tour as Ron Burgundy? Because I, that would be awesome. What an it? And especially, like, in the suit and the whole thing. Right. The whole, like, in character. I think it would be <laughs> fantastic. My favorite part was that the, um, the piece that I've been reading about it and that we'll link to in the show notes is from the New York Times Arts Beat. Uh, blog, and they have just played along with the joke, which made me really happy. You know, I think uh, New York Times can be a little serious sometimes, and it was great to see them. Uh, oh, the piece opens in his time as a television broadcaster. Ron <laughs> Burgundy has boasted that he discovered the wheel and built the Eiffel Tower out of metal and bra. <laughs> and so you have to wonder, like the the readers of the New York Times, you know, do they all get it, or are some of them like scratching like, their heads? Who is this Ron Burgundy character? Uh, and I, so we're opening with that this week because last week I had the great pleasure of saying I was in a glass case of emotion on the show. And I love it when the internet gives us a gift of a nice follow up. Um, but I'm super stoked. I um, have often said I have sort of snooty taste in books and absolutely like terrible taste in movies. Uh, and Will Ferrell is one of my weaknesses. So I can probably quote more of Anchorman than I should publicly admit, but I'm really excited to see how that goes. I think it'll be a great time. Um, and I've been thinking about other fictional characters or movie characters that I wish would write memoirs. And right now I'm thinking Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec would be great. Um, yeah, I haven't thought about that, but um, I don't know. Well, you know, I'd love to see actually memoirs from all of the cast members of Orange is the New Black. Oh, yeah. Like the, the you know, Piper Kerman wrote the actual book upon which that, mm -hmm. that show was inspired. But, um, and, and that was her memoir. But I think the characters that they've developed for that show would all have really interesting tales to tell. Oh, I agree. I, I binged through that. In fact, I don't know if it's possible to watch that on Netflix and not just binge through all of the episodes. I don't think so. Um, but we get such interesting little peeks at their backstories. You're right. It would be great to get more insight into each one of them and their lives before and after they get out. I think Are you maybe, hearing that, producers? Yes, please, please be, hear our cry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we've got our first sponsor. We've got the uh, same sponsor that we had last week, Among the Jainites, A Journey Through the World of Jane Austen Fandom by Deborah Yaffe, or yeah, I think Yaffe is how you pronounce it. Uh, she is a reporter. She's been a reporter for a long time, and she was fascinated by the, sort of the boom in fandom around Jane Austen and the excitement in pop culture around these books that are 200 years old, uh, Pride and Prejudice had its 200th anniversary recently. So Yaffe goes where the Jane people are. She um, goes on a pilgrimage to historic sites in Britain. She joins chat rooms with fans online. She attended the annual ball of the Jane Austen Society of North America, which who knew that that existed, but it does. Oh. <laughs> 
<laughs> and she goes in period costume for that um, to understand how these passionate fans have transformed Jane Austen from sort of a classic dusty novelist into a pop culture phenomenon. Um, so the book is about the endurance of Austen's stories and how they relate to people 200 years later, but also the unusual zeal that these books seem to inspire in modern day people and the diversity of the, of the lives that it touches. I, I love that there's like a Jane Austen con sort of situation, like Comic-Con or... Um, yeah. Like, yeah, what do they do? I wonder. Yeah, I, I don't know. I fessed up on last week's show that I don't really love Pride and Prejudice. So I have a hard time imagining like getting stoked about putting on a period costume and do they like drink tea and eat finger How about Mr. Darcy lookalike contest? Oh, that would be good. <laughs> <laughs> the Mr. Darcy pageant. Yeah. That's a brilliant uh, idea. I, yeah. I have not, I'm not a huge fan of Jane Austen either, but um, I did read the book that you mentioned last week, Longbourn, mm-hmm. um, which is the Pride and Prejudice told really scene by scene from the servant's perspective. And it's fantastic just on its own, even if you haven't read Pride and Prejudice. So I would recommend that for you, Rebecca. Ooh, I and then maybe that. you will become a Jainite. Maybe I will. You know, it didn't work for me um, when I did sort of the same thing with Jane Eyre. I read Wide Sargasso Sea. Um, yeah. In college, before I read, I had I had not read Jane Eyre, and the Wide Sargasso Sea is told from the perspective and about the about Bertha, the Madwoman, in the attic. So I knew way before I ever encountered Jane Eyre what the big reveal was going to be uh-huh. in Jane Eyre, and that sort of bummed me out. But Longbourn sounds uh, everybody that I know who's read it has raved about yeah, it. I, I foresee Jane Austen tables in bookstores, and mm. you know Jane Austen review roundups all over the place. We're definitely going to have a Jane Austen moment. And we have uh, on Book Riot today a video that I saw yesterday floating around the internet somewhere that's Jane Austen Fight Club. And it is ladies in this Victorian garb saying things like, uh, no corsets, no hat pins, no crying. (laughs) And I'm amused by that. I'm glad to see these Jane Austen things. It's just cool to see a book that's been around for so long continue to create such excitement. So uh, thanks to Among the Jainites by Deborah Yaffe for sponsoring the show. And we can keep running through our list of news. Um, so the, I think the big story or the one that I've heard the most about this week is that Forbes released their list of the world's top earning authors. And um, it's, con- it's the top earning authors for the year, uh, but the year is June 2012 to June 2013. Uh, so E.L. James, top of the list, yeah, no great surprise there. Not a surprise there. $95 million she's made in the last 12 months. I just can't even get my head around that kind of money. No, and you know, the thing is she had three books. Um, and those books, because they, they were so successful when they were self-published, and I think she was doing really well. But like, could you just imagine going from like, I mean, she, she had a good job, but you know, I think upper middle class. And mm-hmm. now all of a sudden she's, at the top of this Forbes list. It's just crazy. $95 million. It, it, it is crazy. There's been a lot of snob factor stuff happening in the discussions of the, the writers on this list. Um, number two is James Patterson with $91 million. Suzanne Collins, who, of course, wrote the Hunger Games trilogy, is number three at $55 million. Number and that's, that's also without new, a new book. Right. Year. Right, that's that's a really good point. Um, Bill O'Reilly is number four, $28 million in the last year on books. I have to say that surprised me. I'm not surprised that his books sell well, but I was surprised that he came in so high on the list. Um, Danielle Steele is at number five with $26 million. Jeff Kinney, who wrote the Diary of a Wimpy Kid books that um, have now inspired movies and that, of course, are beloved by kids and parents alike, uh, came in at $24 million, as did Janet Ivanovich. And the list just goes on. Nora Roberts, our boy Dan Brown, uh, Stephen King, Dean Koontz, John Grisham, David Baldacci, Rick Reardon. J.K. Rowling is number 15 uh, at $13 million which I guess will be interesting a year from now to see how she shakes out after the cuckoo's calling. Yeah, she could rise rise on the charts. Though, you know, Casual Vacancy came out, was it last year? So that might be right. in these numbers. I'm not sure. Yeah, well, that was fall 2012, I think. So yeah. you're right. Yeah. Uh, but she's. I think we'll see her on this list for a while. Probably forever, yeah. Probably, yeah, J.K. Rowling forever. Um you know, there's the responses have been interesting. It should be no surprise, as you said, that E.L. James is at the top of this list. Those books have sold like crazy. And as much uh, sort of whinging as I've seen about 
oh, but why does it have to be E.L. James? It's pretty exciting to me that anybody is making $95 million on books in a year. Like, that's a good story for readers, don't you think? Yes. And, you know, I would love to see, and maybe this exists out there, I would love to see kind of all of entertainment stacked up or, you know, the top 50 or whatever to see where these authors fall in relation to other creative types. Um, Because, I mean, this is a lot of money, but I sort of feel like, you know, there are some actors who probably make that for one movie, three weeks of work. That's not very good. I don't know. Yeah. And you pointed out that Suzanne Collins did this 55 million in the last year without any new books. And sort of that breakdown is interesting to me. Like James Patterson has, it seems like James Patterson has a new book out every other month. So he's making 91 million in the last year, but that's for several books and all of his backlist, which is quite extensive. And then E.L. James has earned her $95 million on three books alone. And Suzanne Collins, same thing. And none of them were new in the last year. So there's a how prolific you are factor. And then there's a how popular you are factor. And it seems like for Patterson, popular times prolific is the magic formula. Um, and, and let's not forget that he's a longtime advertising guy and really, really smart. Right, yeah. That about t- promoting. <laughs> that totally helps. And right, Bill O'Reilly, I guess if I think about the listeners to his radio shows and his shows on Fox News, has quite a following. And those people are reading books. Um, so that, that sort of makes sense to me now that I'm shaking it out. Yeah, um, I think the most amazing story out of all this is Jeff Kinney, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, because I mean, he really, you know, the wimpy kid was sort of a labor of love when he started. Um, but what really strikes me is there was an article, a profile of Jeff Kinney in the Boston Globe this week. And, you know, even though he made $24 million on this Forbes list, he still has his day job that he does, you know, every single day. He's a video game designer. Oh boy. Uh, he works, you know, in his home office and he goes into the office in Boston and he goes on business trips, you know, for his job. And that to me, I I don't know. I don't know if I would do the same thing, honestly. I don't know. (laughs) I love my job, but I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I love my job too. I don't, I don't know. Um, $24 $24 million and still working a day job. I, the, the piece that we're referring to is a, a profile of Kinney from the Boston Globe that will drop into the show notes. And he talks about how he works 13 to 17 hours a day, every day. And, and I guess that's work on day job work plus work on books. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he has kids. Yes, I think two kids, yeah. And a just, lovely wife, and they just bought this sort of dilapidated building in a town very close to my house, uh, which is now a hole in the ground. They had it torn down. It was a real eyesore, and so they wanted to give back to the town, so they bought this building, and they're going to make it into something wonderful. We don't know what. There's been rumors that maybe it will be a bookstore. Oh, how cool. Um, but, you know, he's just, he's a good citizen, and he works hard. Like, it's just hard not to be in love with this guy. Yeah, I, I, I know writers say that there is a lot of valuable stuff about keeping your day job while you do your creative work. And I've heard it particularly from like literary novelists who don't really have much of a choice. Very few literary novelists are able to support themselves full time on what they make from book sales. So they work, you know, sort of office day jobs. Um, and, and I can certainly see the value in having a job where you just go and you sort of punch your card and you do the job every day and then you can let your brain work on its creative work sort of in the background and then come to your creative work in your spare time I I doubt that's ideal, you know, to have to crunch time so much or to work 17 hours a day total. Plus his day job is creative. Video game designing is not exactly the sort of thing that lets your your brain relax um, while you're while you're doing it. But it seems to be working for him. Like he's been doing this for years now and he's super yeah. successful. I'm, I'm impressed. Uh, he mentions in this profile that his family bought a smaller house um, next door to the house that they live in. And that he uses that as his office. That's where they keep all of the tons of mail that come in from kids who read and love the books. Um, and he has two employees. So that would help, I think, in doing your 17 hours a day of work. But but just cool. This guy seems good job, Jeff Kinney. You seem awesome. Yeah. Well, and let's not forget that that like office also doubles as a karaoke studio where <laughs> he sings Bon Jovi at night when he's stressed. 
Do you have a, a bad music like pleasure when you're having a hard work day? Because I, I definitely do. Um, I have a lot of them. And usually it's me riding around in my car with um, like a journey at top volume or something. <laughs> um, also, I, I really like there's um, this band called Girl Talk. Hmm. that does a, a mashup of just so much stuff. It's like hip-hop, but it, it, they sample from across all genres, all years. And everyone, you know, it's just fun picking out the snippets of, you know, Donna's Summer and oh, hearing great. them rework it. So, yeah, that's a little bit of a guilty pleasure. Yeah, the, guilty. I have no guilty pleasures. I'm yeah, proud just, of them just all. Just pleasures. They're just good things in life. Um, mine is, it's usually really, you know, sort of like old hip hop up really loud. And my husband knows that like the later at night it is and the louder the sound coming out of my office. (laughs) It's like either the more stressed out I am or the harder time I'm having writing whatever the thing is that I'm writing. And that is when the office dance parties have to happen. You know, there's nothing like shooping at midnight. I hear you. It's me and my red minivan. You know, if you ever see the minivan rocking at the light. That's probably me having a bad day. <laughs> I, I love also about this profile um, that Jeff Kinney, who's making $24 million a year on his books, like just seems to be a totally normal down to earth person, which it would be easy not to be with that kind of money. But he's like, he's singing wanted dead or alive when he has a rough day. <laughs> <laughs> and he admits this to the Boston Globe. I think that's <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, So good job, Jeff Kinney, for being awesome. And you can check out the whole list of Forbes top earning authors. We'll drop the link into the show notes, which is bookriot.com slash category slash podcast. You can read that whole list. Um, If you have thoughts about who the top earning authors are um, or any surprises or anyone you thought would be on the list but isn't, you can shoot us an email at podcast at bookriot.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, And now on to sort of a cool tech thing. This is a tech thing that I think should have existed a while ago, but I'm really glad that it's happening at all. The creators of Choose Your Own Adventure Books uh, launched a Kickstarter on uh, August 12th, so just earlier this week, to turn the Choose Your Own Adventure Books into an iPad app. Uh, They are looking to raise $130,000 for the Choose Tunes, and it just looks like a really good time. You get to like design your own robot and create your own story as you go. Did you love these books, Anne? I did love these books a lot. Um, but so I'm struggling a little bit with the concept of this because I'm thinking, how is this necessarily different from a regular video game? Mm, interesting. The thing I like, I, the thing I really loved about the books was that I don't know. You could really imagine the entire scenario. And then think about what you wanted to do. Where I, I wonder in the video game if, if you still have that imagination. I don't know. I mean, these were so unique and so high concept when they were introduced to us as kids, I think. I mean, the fact that you could control your own narrative mm-hmm. was something that I had never experienced as a kid reading books before. Um, and I just wonder with today's kids that are grown up on you know video games and all of that stuff, if it's going to have the kind of impact that it did for our generation. Sure. Or if it'll just be all like people our ages downloading right. this iPad app to have their nostalgia fix. Well, and that's one of the things that the article said was, you know, the, the Kickstarter tactic of relying on nostalgia is a proven mm-hmm. strategy to get funding. And um, yeah, I mean, I think most of the people who will fund these are those who have a fondness for the books, which I certainly do. Because um, not only did I read them as kids, but I also sold them when I worked for the publisher and ah. I mean, they were huge. You know, bookstores would buy 10 or 20 copies of every one every month. And, you know, there is an entire generation that grew up with these. So I think it's a good idea. I'm just wondering how they're going to set it apart from other video games out there. Yeah, I'm I'm interested in that also. I had this well-worn Thundercats themed choose your own adventure yes. book as a kid where part of the joy was, you know, seeing if you want to do A, turn to this page and if you want to do B, turn to this other page and you sort of like flip ahead to both of those pages and peek <laughs> at what's there. Um I was never a totally honest choose your own adventure participant. I wanted to sort of, you know, construct the one that I would like the best, so I was constantly peeking and flipping back and then if I took choice A and didn't like it. I went back and tried to take choice <laughs> B um, and go down the path. I met a person who was working on um, 
uh, on sort of the same idea for an iPad app, but not connected to the Choose Your Own Adventure brand of books um, at Digital Book World last year. And it was like you put your name in and it would make you the main character and you got to name uh, what kind of animal you wanted to be um, have to have as your sidekick. Um, and then it would give the page uh, of text for the story and you just hit, you know, one button to go forward and one button to go back. And it really did feel like choose your own adventure brought to digital reading oh. rather than, rather than an animated video game. Uh, so I could see that working. I could see looking at my tablet and just clicking here to go to this page and here to go uh, to that other page. And you could still sort of peak. It wouldn't, I don't think it'll have that magic of just sort of like turning the page a quarter of the way and seeing what happens. Yeah. I don't know if you can, uh, cheat. (laughs) Maybe it'll have a big box that like pops up and calls you out. Right. Right. Are you cheating? We noticed that you came to this page and you left within 10 seconds. (laughs) I like to think that I'm not the only dishonest choose your own adventure reader. Uh, but I thought this was all things spoiler. So I am not you know, I'm not a peeker a header, but uh, ah, I don't think you're alone. You're not a peeker a header, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm not really in my normal reading life. Like I sort of studiously avoid reviews of books until I have read them because reviewers can be terrible about, um, you know, dropping in information without noting that it's a spoiler. So I try really hard not to know what's going to happen uh, in a book. But choose your own adventure for some reason. Like, I couldn't handle the mystery. (laughs) I had to know what my options were. Um, I I thought that was fun. Maybe they should tap into the nostalgia and do choose your own adventure versions of popular adult fiction. Like a choose your own adventure Gone Girl. Oh. (laughs) Like, should Amy go back to the cabin? Oh, that, that opens up so many possibilities. Yeah, I've just been I've been reading Night Film uh, by Marisha Pessel, which is coming out in September later this month or in September. I'm not certain, um, and that seems like it would be that would make for an interesting choose your own adventure if you got to be the investigator and decide which way to go. Like mysteries seem built for this. James Patterson should make a choose your own adventure. You know, well, he probably already has thought of it. I'm sure, but. Um, I think, yeah, it could be this incredible franchise of you could buy the regular version or the ebook or the audiobook or the choose your own adventure version. <laughs> we Just, will probably get there someday, honestly. Right, yeah. Publishers are starting to really experiment with cool things, which um, is one of the one of the pieces that we try to highlight on this show frequently is what's the, you know, what are the latest cool things being done uh, in books? Because it's easy to talk about technology taking over things or publishers not having totally figured out how to make the ebook bundling thing work or whatever the complaint of the week is. But there are so many exciting things happening. I think this is such a great time to be a reader and I'm happy. I'm super happy to be a reader in the day when I get to play choose your own adventure on an iPad and like connect with my childhood in a way that is, you know, technologically up to date and that fits into my life now. Because I have to tell you, I think that I might have a hard time picking up a choose your own adventure book and like sitting in my backyard and reading it and feeling still like a serious adult person. (laughs) (laughs) But I would have no problem doing it on an iPad. That probably says more about me. Yeah, well, you know, you mentioned Night Film, and um, I don't know if you talked about this in a previous episode. I'm sorry if you did, but there is a really cool app that will be released um, a few days before the book goes on sale, which I should know the date, and I'm sorry I don't know it. Um, But when you read the book, either the physical book or the ebook, with this app, you can scan the actual page. There's going to be like a little symbol, and then that will give you additional content. And I saw a demo of it. It's very cool. Some really neat stuff if you've read the book. Um, and so it'll be really interesting to see how the response to that is from from readers because I think it's fascinating. But whether people actually do it or not is, is you know, anybody's guess. Well, yeah, but uh, that- it's fun to play with. And it's a free app, so I think if people get the book, there's probably instructions in the book about how to get the app. So it's fun to experiment with. Oh, I'm, I'm totally fascinated to hear that the book has like the book is an investigation into whether this young woman who died actually committed suicide the way it looks like she did, or if there was foul play and she's the, she's the child of a famous reclusive cult horror film director. Um, 
it's dark and twisty and the the opening pages of the book look are, are formatted to look like um, newspaper clippings and slideshows like the, like this young woman died and here's a 17 page New York Times slideshow um, of photos that present her history and her family's life there's so much experimentation and how the book is put together it's really creative and I think it's so cool that they went and extended that into an app um, that's that's cool. I'm going to have to check it out. Yeah, you should. I don't want to give too much away because I'm not sure, you know, I, I don't know how much press is out there, but I did see a demo of it and um, I think you will have fun playing with it. Cool. So report back. Yes, I will report back. I like to, you know, I will be the girl reporter and, <laughs> and test out the app. Uh, our second sponsor this week, the show um, is also brought to you by Panorama City by Antoine Wilson. It is freshly out in paperback. Uh, it's about a guy named Oppen Porter who is a self-declared slow absorber. Those are his words. <laughs> we probably all know those people in our lives, but Oppen Porter knows that he is a slow observer. He thinks he's dying. He is not dying. He thinks he is. Uh, and he uses a tape recorder to make note of everything that he thinks will be useful uh, to his unborn son as he you know, grows up and tries to become a man of the world. Uh, so Oppen Porter, slow, abs- uh, slow absorber, uh, traces 40 days and nights in his life. Uh, he lives in the San Fernando Valley, and his primary encounters are with an, an aunt of his who is sharp-tongued and all up in his business, um, and another character who is described as an outlaw philosopher. And along the way, as he's putting together uh, these notes about what will help his son become a man of the world, he is constantly encountering people who think that their way is the only way for him. Uh, and it sounds to me like Oppen is one of those guys that like always agrees with the last person that he talked to. <laughs> so I know people like that. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> that is, I love that phrase. I have to fess up. I stole that phrase from, um, from a friend who in the last election was complaining about a person that she knew who couldn't decide who to vote for because she just always agreed with the last person that she talked to. <laughs> it is useful. Thank you, Natalie, for, the, <laughs> for those words. Uh, so poor Oppen Porter trying to, thinking that he's dying, like trying to make his way um, through the world and leave something of use to his unborn son. Um, so Antoine Wilson's uh, Panorama City, it's described as a story about finding your way in the world and who you are in it, uh, sort of as as he puts together this tape to leave behind for his son who is not alive, yet uh, Porter finds his own way and discovers some things about himself. And the book has been compared to a confederacy of dunces, to um, Ignatius J. Riley, who I think is one of the most beloved characters in classic literature. And it's uh, it's a comedy. It's supposed to be, you know, a funny, touching, uh, literary look at this guy's life. Um, and he seems capable of you know, sort of laughing at himself. So um, I haven't read this, but as I was putting together the notes for it, I was like sort of frantically downloading it, which has proven to be a a dangerous side effect of this job is every time I am, every time Jeff and I talk about a book on the show, I'm like, oh, and now I need to read that thing. Uh, It's a good problem to have. Absolutely. So thank you, Panorama City by Antoine Wilson. We'll have a link to where you can uh, find that in the show notes if you're interested in checking it out. And we are uh, appreciative of that sponsorship this week. So now on to what I think is definitely the coolest thing that happened on the internet this week. Yes! And I know you're excited about it, too. (laughs) There's a new, a relatively new site online called The Toast, uh, which was started by one of the women who ran the hairpin. Uh, and some fellow writers, and they cover all sorts of creative endeavors, but they devoted a whole day earlier this week to V.C. Andrews, uh, who famously wrote Flowers in the Attic and all of the books after that. And I know you were excited about V.C. Andrews Day, Anne. Yeah, so we talked earlier about guilty pleasures, and you know, if I did have guilty pleasures, this would be a number one top of the entire list. Yes. When do you, uh, do you recall your first flowers in the attic experience? Um, I don't, but I know it was illicit and under the covers. And, um, I believe my mom might've actually had the book and I liberated it (laughs) from her stack, I think. And I have to say, I was never forbidden to read anything except Helter Skelter, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but, um, that was the only book I was ever not 
openly allowed to read. But I had a sense, I think, before I picked it up that I shouldn't be reading this. And so I, I did and loved every minute of it. Yep. Um, did not go through the whole series, but uh, I was probably the person who was responsible for most of my classmates' Finding VC. Oh, I was that instigator. You were the instigator. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody has to be. Uh, I found out about Flowers in the Attic. I think I was in sixth grade. Uh, oh, my gosh. I know. <laughs> I was older. I know. I was also never forbidden to read anything. My parents were of the, if you have questions about it, you will ask. And also, if you read something that is totally more mature than you're ready for, most of it will go straight over your head, which I think did happen several times. Uh, But one of my friend's big sisters had flowers in the attic hidden under her mattress. You know, like famous classic. It's such a cliche story. (laughs) Of course, a teenage girl hid her naughty book under her mattress. And we were the kid, you know, it was the kid's sister. And I was friends with the kid's sister. And uh, we were doing what annoying kid sisters do and go through the older sister's room while she's not home. And we, so we found flowers in the attic under her mattress and you could just tell like, okay, first of all, it's hidden under the mattress. So it must be naughty. Otherwise it wouldn't be hidden. Uh, And we started, we sat there and started reading it uh, in the room and my friend's sister discovered that she had read it and then just sort of gave in and let her finish reading it. And then I, I took it and read it. Um, and I don't remember where I hid it in my room, but I remember that. (laughs) I remember that feeling of like, uh, like you said, it was illicit and under the covers. Um, I definitely did not let my parents know that I was reading it. I am certain that I had all kinds of questions about it that I also knew better than to ask my parents. Uh, while I was reading it. But the Flowers in the Attic seems to be that first illicit reading experience for a lot of people. And the editors at The Toast um, all told their stories, but most notably, they got an interview with Anne Patty, who was the editor um, and who worked, you know, very closely with VC Andrews and has not talked much about that experience before. And I know, Anne, you... Uh, you were excited about this interview or there are particular pieces that you want to talk about? Well, the, the interview with Ann Patty was just, it, it was, so she's working on a book about her relationship with VC Andrews, which, uh, sign me up now. Mm-hmm. I don't know the title when it's coming out, whatever, but Ann Patty, I'll send you $30 or whatever it's going to be now. If you want, I want that book. <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, the backstory is just so interesting on so many levels. And this book was such a phenomenon. And I guess it's going to be a Lifetime movie very soon. Oh, Lifetime. Um, That's, yes. That is both perfect and terrible. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that might be what sparked the toast to do this. I'm not exactly sure. Um, but the backstory is interesting for a lot of reasons. Number one, I never knew. And I, I guess I, you know, when I read this, it was before Google. So why would mm-hmm. you look up anything about the author? But evidently, V.C. Andrews had some sort of spinal fusion surgery when she was a teenager and spent her life in not just a wheelchair, but a wheelchair that Ann Patty described as almost like lying on an ironing board, um, which I had no idea. So she wrote this book kind of from that position and her mother took care of her. And of course, there's a big teaser in the interview with Ann Patty that their relationship was not that great. Mm-hmm. And that um, some of Flowers in the Attic was based on some true stories, whether from V.C. Andrews' family or a story she's been told, I'm not really sure. Yeah. But there are these hints that there are some, some reasons that the books are what they are. Uh, and then it's also just a really interesting publishing backstory that as a young editor with no experience, Anne Patty was allowed to buy this book after only reading 98 pages and, you know, that just wouldn't happen today. One talk when, about like a first, a first time, time experience on the job. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're brand new and you're going to publish flowers in the attic. That's gutsy. Uh, yeah. And you're right. I don't think it would happen today. This is like the thing that the editor would have to fight for and have a track record. And yeah. And evidently, you know, she, she built this, this series. And then, uh, there were some hints again in this, in this interview that the franchise was taken away from her. And, um, you know, there's, I'm sure this book that she's writing is going to be so interesting on so many different levels. But the one thing I really loved was when she finally did go to meet 
Virginia, who was V.C. Andrews and her mother, um, they actually did serve powdered donuts, which in the book, um, the arsenic-laced powdered donuts are sort of a feature. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I think they, they, Virginia, anyway, had this sort of sick sense of humor that, uh, I don't know, you know, I, I think the whole publishing story behind these books is, is fascinating. And the fact that they're, we're still talking about it today. Uh, and I also love that the Toast announced when they did V.C. Andrews Day, they said, uh, I'm quoting here, today will be devoted to the study and discussion of V.C. Andrews, the author of Flowers in the Attic. I love that they're saying, you know, the study, because it's now become this almost academic. Uh, <laughs> right. All of, all of us who dug it out of our friends, sisters, mattress hiding places have not been able to forget. And now it's it is it's a piece of literary culture. And it's interesting that it's become that there is this publishing story behind it as well. And, and since you mentioned Google and like how, how much we're used to being able to have access to authors, but also to know anything that we want to know about authors, um, this story would be super different if, if these books could be published today. I don't think there could, they couldn't m- maintain this mystique around V.C. Andrews and around her relationship with the editor. It's the sort of thing like they would want to trot her out for the Today Show. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And in fact, um, in in one of the Anne Patty pieces, it talked about how, I guess after she had sort of made it big, like her second or third book, I'm not sure, she did a book signing at a store in New York City, and really nobody came. She said uh, most of the people who were there were employees of the publisher who just kept going around and around to make it look like um, there were people at the signing. But she said they had done an ad in the New York Times book review advertising the signing but she said the readers for these books were not your typical New York Times book review readers they were just sort of every person and Mm -hmm. it really hit a chord Um, but those people don't go to author signings that's so yeah that all of this is fascinating I'm looking back through the interview right now and uh, Robin Wasserman who conducted it says you're kidding it's a true story and Ann Patty says well someone told it to her and the next sentence is some doctor there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like poor Virginia is in the hospital for a spinal operation and some doctor is telling her like at least some kernel of the story that becomes flowers in the attic. It says whether the twins were real, the sex, the time frame, probably not, but the concept of kids hidden in the attic so their mother could inherit a fortune is real. I, I hope for her sake that that's all that doctor told her. <laughs> uh, I, yeah. I don't know. Uh, and you know, and the other story that I think has sort of been forgotten at this point, or at least isn't a big deal anymore. But I think when V.C. Andrew died in 1986, um, I was a newbie working in publishing at Mm. that time. And uh, it was a huge story because it was the first time that, as far as I know, and I think that got major coverage, the estate hired somebody to continue writing the books under the author's name, even though Mm. the author had passed away. Now it's kind of done a little bit more, but um, at that point it was... It was big news. Yeah, I I didn't put the link uh, in the show notes for today, but the AV Club over at um, the, is it the Onions AV Club? I think so, yeah. Yeah, the AV Club did a story earlier this week about um, beloved authors whose careers had been extended by ghostwriters. And (laughs) V.C. Andrews is on the list, and Robert Ludlum, who wrote the Bourne series, is on the list. And there are a few other surprises. but, But you're right, that wasn't such a thing then, like, uh, we have Brandon Sanderson continuing the Robert Jordan Wheel of Time series or, or who finished the Robert Jordan Wheel of Time uh, series out after he passed. Um, it's a thing that we talk about now, but it wasn't uh, such a regular part of the way that books are made. And uh, there is just a ton to talk about here. We probably could have just devoted an episode of the podcast to the Toast's Day devoted to V.C. <laughs> to Andrews, but we'll leave a link to uh, their V.C. Andrews Day in the show notes. And if you uh, want to binge through all of those posts, which I highly recommend that you do, uh, you'll be able to do that there. Uh, so our last two stories for this week before we do new books are both about libraries. We thought we would end on a good happy note because who doesn't love libraries and the first one is uh, something that you suggested Anne for libraryreads.org so I'll let you uh, tell our listeners what that's all about 
Yeah, so this is a really cool new program where uh, employees of libraries all over the country uh, will be reading advanced reading copies and nominating them for their favorites of the month. And then once a month, the Library Reads website at librarywreads.org will feature those the top 10 titles, the titles that got the most votes. And it's totally organic. Anybody who works at a public library can go online onto this one website and vote for their favorites. All the details are at the Library Reads Org. But the hope is that these will be a, this will be a list that um, librarians will use in public libraries all over the country to promote new titles that are coming out and introduce their patrons to some great new reads. So the first list uh, just came out. It's the September Library Reads list. The favorite book from the list that the librarians voted on is Fangirl by Rainbow Rowell. And this is really interesting on a couple of different levels because while Library Reads at this point is really focused on adult books, Fangirl by Rainbow Rowell is actually being published as a young adult novel, but it is definitely a crossover. I think it will appeal to both adult and young adult readers, and so that was the favorite. So it's a new program, and I'm really excited to see all of these books really getting some love in libraries all over the country, and uh, it'll be a great way to introduce readers to new books that are coming out. It's just, I think it's just so smart that there it's a like national library way of doing what's essentially staff picks and instead of just getting staff picks from the librarians in your library um, who you know I'm sure will be happy to recommend books to you and and get to know you and and your taste you get the benefit of the minds of librarians all over the place um, and sort of what their consensus is and uh, all of the librarians that I know read very widely and, and take it seriously as a part of their job to read not just the books that they're interested in, but anything that they think their patrons might be interested in and find beneficial. And that diversity is certainly reflected on this list. Um, Fangirl, which was the favorite by Rainbow Rowell, her previous novel, Eleanor and Park, was also a young, adult, a young adult novel with huge crossover appeal. And tons of our contributors at Book Riot have uh, read and loved and raved um, about that book, but there's also a Louise Penny um, Inspector Gamache novel, um, Marisha Pestle's Night Film that we were just discussing is on here, um, a book called Help for the Hunted by John Searles, uh, The Returned by Jason Mott, uh, which comes out in a couple of weeks um, from Harlequin Mira, which is you know traditionally a publisher of romance and erotica, but they're really expanding into literary fiction. And I've read The Returned. Um, there were huge banners for it at Book Expo America, which is one of the ways to tell what what books publishers are most excited about. And um, I was happy to see this book on the list. It's a really interesting concept. The um, If you read The Leftovers by Tom Parada, sort of similar, but people all over the world who have been dead come back to life. Um, they aren't zombies. They're themselves uh, sort of one tick off because they've been dead, but they uh, are recognizable to their loved ones. There's a this happens enough that there's like a worldwide bureau for the returned that when you when you turn up undead, uh, they help you get back to your family if your family is still alive. And the story centers around a couple um, who lost a child 50 years ago, and then the child is returned to them. You know, his same age that he was when he died, um, and they're struggling with what like what do you do with this, how do you make sense of having a person back whose loss you've already grieved, um, but also their town uh, is affected by these returned in, in interesting ways. There's a TV series coming out based on it. Um, I thought it was a really interesting story, um, and that is one of these library uh, library reads picks. There's some nonfiction on the list. There's a memoir. Um, some of these are huge, buzzy books like Fangirl and Night Film, and some of them are, are books that you might not have heard of otherwise. So it's really cool uh, to see library reads come out and, and do that. I'm going to be looking at the list for sure. There's sort of nothing better than a smart librarian to recommend you books. Yeah. And I, I suspect we'll see some rock star librarians come out of this as well as, as, you know, we find new people to follow because each recommendation is attributed to the particular library employee that recommended it. And so pretty soon we'll be able to follow uh, library staff. Like we follow booksellers or, mm -hmm you know, book reviewers or people who have the same taste as we do. Oh, I do. I want more rock star librarians. <laughs> basically, I, like, all we have right now is Nancy Pearl, and she's awesome. But more rock star librarians would be great. Here, here. 
And uh, here's one that we can start with. Uh, Seattle Public Libraries has a librarian named Jared Mills, who I think is just one of the librarians participating in this program. But the Seattle Public Library is doing something they call Books on Bikes, where the librarians hitch up a trailer filled with books to a bike, and they ride the bike to local events and set up uh, the trailer, which has like an umbrella attached and some displays, and they um, lend out books from the library to library patrons who are out at local events, like you know food festivals and farmers markets and and that sort of thing. The librarian that this NPR piece profiles um, hops on the bike with the trailer and rides it five miles um, up and down hills <laughs> <laughs> to get to this event. Um, it's sort of like a different version of doing bookmobiles. And I just think this is super cool. There's a great photo that we'll, we'll put with the link in the show notes. But it's so smart. It's great that librarians are, are going out um, and taking their libraries into their communities in these creative new ways. Um, I would love to see this happen. Yeah, and if you read the comments on the piece that you're going to link, um, there are a lot of other places that are doing similar things, and there's some great stories in the comments. I'm usually one of those people that say don't read the comments on the internet, yeah. but I think in this case you can, because uh, there are some wonderful stories. Like there's a um, in Portland, Oregon, there's a Books on Bikes librarian who serves people who can't get a library card because they don't have a physical address. Oh, wow. And it looks like uh, she's going to start write a book or something about it. So I'll try to be following that story as well. Uh, Denver has a bike that they just started. And I think it's great that, you know, the, the libraries are reaching out into the communities instead of waiting for people to maybe come to the physical location. Um, though I think it's clever in this case that the books that the Seattle bike librarian is uh, lending out have to be returned at physical libraries. So that might be a good way to get people into the library. That is clever. He notes in the piece that he won't take returns when he's out at these events because he doesn't want to have to bike the books <laughs> back up the hill. But I think you might be on to something that they really want uh, to find a way to, to draw people into the physical location, which is certainly smart. But good job, uh, Seattle librarians and the other public librarians that are doing this. Um, Libraries are alive and well and really continuing to provide value for the reading community, um, no matter how many silly editorials are written uh, that proclaim the opposite. So we'll keep talking about the awesome things that librarians are doing. And uh, if a librarian in your community or one that you know is is doing a cool thing that serves readers, we would love to hear about it at podcast at bookriot.com. And now we'll wrap up and talk about new books out this week. Uh, these are books that were published already this week. They're out. They're available. By the time you listen to the show, you'll be able to um, download them or run over to your local bookstore and pick them up. And my pick this week, uh, which is on my uh, TBR pile right now, is The Field by Kevin Maher or Mayer, M-A-H-E-R. It's published by Reagan Arthur Books. Um, and if you are a geek who follows uh, publishing imprints. Reagan Arthur is a publisher whose taste I just really consistently trust. Uh, the Field is a coming-of-age novel about a 14-year-old boy in 1980s Dublin. We've got the 80s. We've got teenage angst. I am totally sold. Uh, he finds himself the object of affection of a beautiful older girl and also the target of a, quote, devious religious figure in the community. <laughs> I am so, like... All my bells are ringing. I'm so uh, looking forward to this. Uh, the 14-year-old boy takes a clandestine trip to London with his girlfriend, uh, and this causes all sorts of unforeseen complications of the dark and dangerous variety, and his life just sort of unravels from there. Uh, so it's definitely a growing up ain't easy story. And I love that. I, that I cannot perfect. resist a coming of age. The eighties. I mean, come on, this is just Ireland. Be, right. <laughs> all of this, all of the things in this book um, make me happy. And on the latest books on the nightstand, and you talked about the next uh, pick that I can't wait to hear more about, which is the people in the trees. And yes. I will let you pronounce this author's name. <laughs> it's Hanya Yanigahara. Okay. And she is just this lovely, amazing woman. I got to meet her. I was so excited. And she's fantastic. And um, I'm going to try to give the short version of this book talk because it's hard for me to not go on and on about it. Um, but it's told in the form of a professor's memoir. Uh, he has dictated this this memoir to his assistant, and so it feels like you're you're reading an actual, you know, uh, 
biography or autobiography mm-hmm. of, of a professor uh, and a medical doctor who in the 1950s uh, is sent on an anthropological outing to a remote island in Micronesia where he investigates and discovers this tribe, the native tribe that lives there. Uh, and he finds that there is something really amazing about these people. They have a secret that he then brings back to the United States to kind of capitalize on. Mm. And so that changes everybody's lives. It changes his lives and the lives of the tribe and, and the you know, environmental and every other aspect of life on this island. Uh, as the drug companies get a hold of this discovery that that this doctor has made. Um, but beyond that, when we meet this man and he's giving his his dictation to his assistant, uh, we learn that he's in prison for abusing some children that he adopted from mm. this island that he brought to the United States. And so there's this disturbing element that runs through as he's telling your story. You know at the beginning that he's in jail for this and you kind of you know, that's driving in the back of your mind as you're reading, you want to find out the, the real story of what happened too. So it's dark, it's disturbing, it brings up all kinds of ethical issues. There's a science element, there's a natural element that some people have, um, just uh, compared to Barbara Kingsolver's, um, I'm forgetting the book, I'm sorry, uh, I, um, Year of Wonder? No. I don't know. I'm forgetting. I'm sorry. Um, but it's, it's gotten great reviews and it's one of the most original books I've read this year. It sounds terrific. Uh, and the other new book that we, that we're both looking at, but that neither of us has read yet, uh, is the color master by Amy Bender short stories. I know a lot of people for whom a new Amy Bender short story day is like a holiday. It is. It is. Um, you know, Amy Bender's last book was a beloved novel, um, the particular sadness of lemon cake. Thank you. Yes. I always forget the particular part. I knew there's a word there, particular sadness of lemon cake. Um, but I've been a fan of Amy Bender from the very beginning. Her collection of short stories, the girl in the flammable skirt is one of my all time favorite short story collections. And I would put her firmly in the camp of George Saunders and Karen Russell. So if you like those two short story authors, you will also love Amy Bender. Oh, just take my money now. (laughs) (laughs) You had me at Karen Russell. So I'm taking this on vacation with me next week. And those are the new books for the week. And that is our show. You can find me on Twitter at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. And I'm on Twitter as Ann, at Ann Kingman, A-N-N-K-I-N-G-M-A-N. You can find Book Riot, of course, at bookriot.com, on Twitter at bookriot, facebook.com slash bookriot. And if you have thoughts about the show, you can email us at podcast at bookriot.com. Uh, if you're listening and you like the show, or even if you have criticism, uh, we appreciate all reviews and ratings in the iTunes store that helps other listeners to find us. And it gives us great feedback. We read every review. Um, and we've taken listener feedback so far into uh, changing the format of the show a little bit and the show notes so that there is as much information as possible for you. So we will continue to do that. You can find show notes at bookriot.com slash category slash podcast. Uh, Jeff will be back next week and he will bring his author trivia back with him uh, for this week. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks so much, Anne, for being here with me. It's been a really great time. Thanks for having me. All this right. was so much fun. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.